We continue now to work our way through Mark's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Mark's Gospel. Still in chapter 1, we will read verses 14 through 20. But first, let's bow before the Lord, our God. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, this minister who is in and of himself totally undeserving, ill-deserving, hell-deserving, but who has been saved by the grace of God, longs that everyone under the hearing of his preaching be saved. And we ask, Lord, that some who are not disciples will be called by sovereign grace to be disciples this morning. And we ask that the people of God, all of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who need that grace worked within our minds and hearts even deeper so that we will be more faithful as disciples, will be more faithful. Depending upon thy grace, for Father, we know that our acceptance is completely based upon what Jesus did when he shed his blood and rose from the dead. But Father, we want to be faithful children of God and faithful followers of the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain. And so we give to Thee glory as we turn to Thy Word and ask that we might willingly sit under its authority and that we might be filled with praise that we have this privilege of opening the Word of God, hearing it read and proclaimed. And may we long for this all the way through our pilgrimage to our heavenly home to live under the Word. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Please stand as we read, beginning at verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, we have just read a very uncomplicated, straightforward, direct account of the call of disciples of Jesus. 
its application should be clear to us. It's applicable to Christ's irresistible call in our lives and what it means to be kingdom disciples. Discipleship cannot be severed from its context, and the context is the context of a call to be members of the kingdom of God. Now, before looking more directly at this, I want you to notice that we are informed immediately here that John the Baptist has been imprisoned. It's interesting to note that the verb that is used for John's imprisonment is the same verb that is used in chapters 9, 10, and 14 of Jesus being delivered over to death. Now, certainly, we don't want to just draw conclusions based on the fact that a verb is used here and a verb is used there. But I think in this case, we're being shown that the ministries and treatment of John and Jesus are inseparably related. After all, John is the predicted forerunner of the Messiah. And we should expect then to see related themes of John's ministry and Jesus' ministry and some relationship between how they were treated and overlap in their ministries. And there are two things that overlap that we'll see that I want you to keep in mind as we work our way through Mark. One overlap of the ministry of John the Baptist and that of the Lord Jesus is the theme of conflict. The conflict cannot be cannot be such that it would ultimately hinder the gospel. But the gospel comes in the context of conflict it did then, it does now. And there also is the theme of preaching, which is, is something that shouldn't be missed. It's huge in the New Testament. John had preached Jesus. Jesus preaches the theme of the kingdom. John had preached about something that would happen. Jesus preaches that this new thing has happened and that he is the embodiment of that new thing, and that new thing is the kingdom of God. God had only one son, and he made him a preacher, said Thomas Goodwin the Puritan. So these themes continue. The kingdom has come and is coming through conflict, and furthermore, the Lord still calls preachers to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to those who hear and to those who will not hear. But what is this kingdom that John preached, that Jesus preached, that we are called to preach? What did Jesus mean when he proclaimed the kingdom? And what do we mean when we speak of the kingdom and we preach the kingdom and proclaim the kingdom of God? We say the kingdom of God, and yet sometimes it's, it's very vague to us. We don't understand precisely what it means. Well, that leads us to the first thing we want to see in the text. Jesus' central message. Jesus' central message. And look at verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming or preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so in verse 14, Christ's ministry begins there in the northern province of Israel in Galilee. You'll remember there's Galilee and then there's Judea in the south and it's separated by the district of Samaria. So his first appearance was, however, in Judea, there with the ministry of John. 
And after the imprisonment of John, Jesus came to Galilee, his hometown. Nazareth was in Galilee, we know that, and he was rejected by his hometown of Nazareth. Jesus, you will remember, was rejected, but he continued to preach. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he continued to preach and to preach and to preach. He came to preach, preaching the gospel of God. That's what he says. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, you remember in verse 1 of this chapter, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the title of the entire book. And so we have that electrifying word once again, gospel, glad tidings, good news, that ultimately will find its focal point in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we might be forgiven of our sins. This preaching is preaching that the prophets had longed for and had proclaimed and had, had prophesied, and we saw it even in Isaiah this morning in that 52nd chapter where it speaks of the, the blessedness of the feet of those who bring glad tidings, who bring gospel. William Hendrickson made the comment, to be sure, all of God's true servants tell the story, but God in Christ saw to it that there was a story to tell. It was he who pardoned the way of salvation, who provided the way of salvation, apart from which all men would have been everlastingly lost. This good news is therefore, in truth, the gospel of God. It's always of God. It's always this downward movement. It is always from Him. It is always of grace. And so when we read verse 15, the proclamation of the gospel of God had this content. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Here is Jesus' central message. The message he has come to preach. One reason we need to be clear on this is because the theme of the kingdom has been so badly handled at various times. In classical liberalism, the church was taught falsely by false teachers that the kingdom was the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man, and that through human effort we would bring in the kingdom. Well, that was a wrong use of the idea of the kingdom, total abuse of the theme. In older dispensationalism, there was a teaching that the kingdom was offered to the Jews, and when they rejected the kingdom, God instituted plan B, the church. And the practical effect was to remove the significance of the concept of the kingdom from Christian living. But the truth and reality of the kingdom is so pervasive in the New Testament that even when the word is not used, the concept is everywhere present, and we need to have a clear understanding of its meaning. What is meant here in Mark? What is meant in the New Testament when it speaks of, either in those words or with other words, what is meant by the kingdom of God? We learn what it means by taking several truths into account. I'm going to give you several truths that will help you to understand what the kingdom means. First of all, the kingdom of God is not so much a realm as it is a rule. Now, it is a realm, but in the New Testament, the spatial idea recedes into the background, and the kingdom of God specifically means that the saving reign of God has come. 
It stresses the activity of the king when it speaks of the kingdom of God. And then the kingdom of God also is something that is present. It is something that is here. It is something that has come. It is in the midst of those to whom Jesus proclaimed it. The hope of the Old Testament has been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, and with Jesus comes the kingdom. For example, in Luke chapter 11, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, you know that the kingdom has come upon you. Jesus says, it is here, it is present. You see it in the sign of my casting out demons. And then the kingdom of God also is future. If it is present, it is also future. It is here, but it also is yet to come. That is in its fullness, that is in its consummation when Jesus comes again. And so as someone has said, the kingdom has both come and is still to come because Jesus has come and is to come. And that's why we pray when we gather here on Sunday mornings using the words of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. It's a present reality, but also it's a future reality. The kingdom is inseparable from Christ himself in his earthly ministry. The kingdom has come upon us. The kingdom is the presence of the future. So when the Apostle Paul speaks of our being a part of the new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17, for example, he's using kingdom language. It's a kingdom idea that the future has broken into time in the coming of Jesus Christ. The kingdom also is a gift. We receive the kingdom. We inherit the kingdom. We enter into the kingdom, but we never earn it. We never work it up, and we do not bring it in. The kingdom also came with signs. The preaching of the gospel, which is a continuing sign that the kingdom is here. The casting out of demons, the the overt forgiveness of sins, such as we see in Mark's gospel in chapter 2. The coming of the kingdom also always calls for faith and repentance, a total commitment, and demands cosmic restoration. History is going somewhere, and that somewhere is the consummation of the kingdom of God, and that calls for faith, and it calls for repentance. And then, Whenever God's saving rule is manifest, wherever it is manifest, wherever it is made known, that is where you find the kingdom. It's not just an idea, it's a reality already among us. In the believer's heart, there is the beginning and promise of total renewal. And that's why our confessional standards also identify the church and the kingdom, because the place of his saving rule is peculiarly manifested in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are truths that we keep in mind as we move through the gospel and we see these references to the kingdom of God overtly or sometimes implicit. William Hendrickson says, the kingdom of God of heaven or just the kingdom indicate God's kingship, rule, or sovereignty recognized in the hearts and operative in the lives of his people and affecting their complete salvation, their constitution as church, and finally a redeemed universe. All of that is meant when Jesus came proclaiming, preaching the kingdom. What does that mean for the sinner to whom the preaching of the gospel comes and to those who believe the gospel? Well, there's one thing it certainly means. Life can't be the same. Life must change. 
If the kingdom has come and the king has brought the kingdom, life must change. And so it says in verse 15, the time is come or fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom has come close to us human beings in the coming of Jesus. In Jesus, the kingdom confronts us as we read in Isaiah 52, 57, verse 2, your God reigns. Your God reigns. And that places on us some very important call to a life change. So you say, well, so what? Well, if we believe in Jesus, then we believe the word of the king who has brought the kingdom near to us, and life must be different. We must bow to a new allegiance. In the twin imperatives, repent and believe the good news we find the foundation of our call as disciples of Jesus Christ. And it was not only then when he preached it, but it was when Paul preached it. It is when it is preached today, this morning, in our hearing. Paul said in Acts 20, 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must first turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These kingdom imperatives still must be preached and proclaimed. And so we are to believe in Jesus and that the hope for kingdom has come in him is something that we, that we believe when we trust in him. We repent. That is to say, there is a new direction in life, a new mindset with new values, with new attitudes. And it will take the entire book of Mark for us to begin to see what all of that means. Do you believe in Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in him alone for your salvation and your redemption? Are you one who believes and who repents? The Heidelberg Catechism summarizes faith very beautifully when it says, true faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a firm confidence which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are fully given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. So I'm not only asking, do you believe that these things are true? That's part of faith. But I'm asking, can you say with the with the instructor of the catechism. It is not only that, but also a firm confidence which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel, that not only others, but to me also, remission of sins and everlasting righteousness and salvation are fully given by God merely of grace. Now, since the kingdom confronts us in Jesus, life can never be the same. So we believe and we repent and we change and we are more and more conformed to the image of God's own dear son. But the call goes out, believe in Christ, repent of your sins, turn around, shift the direction of your living from self to Godward living, open your heart to his values, sit willingly under the authority of his word. Let's live as those who believe that the greatest event in the universe has taken place when Jesus came into this earth to save us. Do you believe him? And do you believe that that is true? 
Now, the announcement of the kingdom, which we have seen in these two verses, brings with it the call to kingdom discipleship. That's the second thing we see, kingdom discipleship. And you see it in verses 16 through 20. When he calls, Jesus calls four of his disciples. It begins with Simon and Andrew. Jesus has just announced a theme with cosmic dimensions. And then what? Well, you see him by the seaside, calling men to himself, who are of little worth and value as the world counts worth and value, of no importance to the worldly system that men think is so grand. But these men are important to him. He loves them. He cares about them. And he still is calling people like these men to himself, upon whom he has set his love, his saving design. Simon and Peter are in the fishing industry. They are casting their circular casting net into the lake. And that's what the the Greek actually says. It tells us what kind of net they're using, because you will remember that this is almost certainly Mark writing down what Peter had preached. And so we have these evidences of these historical markers. And authoritatively, Jesus says, come, follow me. Literally, here, behind me. And that word goes out this morning as well. Come, follow me, here, behind me says the Lord Jesus. Jesus calls, and they come. In verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. We see divine authority. We see a divine compulsion that comes through the divine God-man calling them. They are incapable of any other response. And he says, I will make of you, progressively more and more, I will make of you fishers of men. Now, there's Old Testament background to that, because when we look at uh, Jeremiah 16, Ezekiel 29, Amos 4, Habakkuk 1, there's this context of fishing, but the context is judgment. Well, the judgment is yet to come. And the mission of the disciples, this side of judgment, will be to take the gospel to people who are under the judgment of God, people who need a Savior, people who need a Redeemer, people who need deliverance from Satan's kingdom unto the kingdom of God's own dear Son. It's missions, if you will. Missions is the evidence that the church understands the urgency of the gospel. But then we also have James and John. And we read in verses 19 and 20, And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So we have this second pair, same pattern, why do Simon, Andrew, James, and John respond as they do? What does this tell us about Christ Immediately it says, look at who he is. He is the Son of God, as we saw in chapter 1. He is the second person of the Trinity, as we saw earlier in chapter 1. Become man. Look at his authority, his absolute God-like authority. Without delay, he calls, they come. And called has this deep, rich significance in the Bible. 
And in verse 20, the, the verb that is, is, is used of their coming away is to go away, to depart, to discontinue from a condition or a state. They're leaving their old way of life to follow Him in this new way of life that He has designed for them to which He is calling them. He calls all classes, all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life, just as here. And we become disciples by the call of Jesus. As Adolf Schlatter said, the disciple does not hurry along to Jesus, but rather is chosen and called by Him. Have you heard that call? Let's go further. The third point we see are some essential elements of kingdom discipleship. Some essential elements of kingdom discipleship. And I'm going to point out three. And the first essential element of kingdom discipleship that we see here is to be a disciple means to be called into a personal, saving relationship with the King, with Jesus, the King of the kingdom. This call is in no sense the work of man. The Lord does this in absolute sovereign freedom. Never and in no sense does it depend on man. The called come most eagerly and willingly, but they came and they come because of his call. We cannot and have no desire to become disciples apart from sovereign regeneration and calling. God's hands are not tired, tied. God is the Lord. He is the potter. We are the clay. Do you desire to come? Don't stand afar off because none truly desire to come but those who are called. And the calling comes through Jesus' word and continues to come through the proclamation of his word. And we must distinguish the external from the internal, effectual, irresistible call of God. And so we are called to preach to everyone indiscriminately. The kingdom has come, believe and repent. But it is God the Holy Spirit who actually, who actually internally grants faith and repentance and the ability to respond. The call to all preaching is indiscriminate. The Holy Spirit makes it particular. As we have said before, it's like the lightning here in Florida. You see in the summer months especially the lightning that lights up the sky that is the general call of the gospel, if you will. But then there also is the lightning that strikes. That is the effectual call. So it's not like this. <clears throat> I took this quote from someone who was reflecting in another context on preaching that he had often heard. And I have heard preaching very much like this. Let me give it to you. This is a quote. This is not me. It's not like this. The preacher stands and he says, God is ready. God is willing. God is eager. God is anxious. God is pleading for the privilege of washing away the sins of every soul in the precious blood of his son and heir. But his hands are tied. His power is limited. His grace is constrained by you. If you want to be saved, God is willing to save you. If you don't want to be saved, there isn't anything that even God can do to rescue from the pit of eternal burning. That is not biblical. It is not the God of the Bible. 
It is not the way in which God calls. His hands are not tied. He calls whom he wills, and when he calls, the called ones come. And the church often lacks a profound apprehension of God and his majesty and sovereignty. And through no merit of our own, God calls and keeps his own, and they will never perish. The first thing that you must see, the first element of discipleship, is that we are called of God And he is the one who makes it effectual. The second element of discipleship is this. To be a disciple means actively promoting the gospel. Taking into account that these men are formed into an apostolate eventually and we are not. Taking into account that they are called to preach and there are others who are called to preach until Christ comes again. But not many are called to preach. Yet... All disciples of Jesus Christ have a part to play as fishers of men. Through your personal witness, through your words and your life that backs up those words, through your support of true preaching, through your support of missions and praying that all who have ears to hear will hear, you also are fishers of men. And we read in Proverbs 11.30, he who winneth souls is wise. We read in Daniel chapter 12, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn away many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. You are a fisher of men. But there's a third element that is true of every disciple of Jesus. And that element is to be a disciple of Jesus means to be totally committed to him. Now, I did not say perfectly committed to him. That will not happen until heaven. But there is a reorientation of life that we can actually call a total commitment to Christ. Turn over in Mark to the eighth chapter. We'll get there hopefully in a few weeks. But in the 8th chapter, verses 34 through 37, will simply remind us of the point. Mark 8, beginning at verse 34. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Everything in our lives should be from the standpoint of his approval. Outward changes, inward attitudes, and heart motivation. No disciple follows the Lord perfectly. But oh, that's the heart's desire of every true disciple as a trajectory of life. Nothing is outside the kingly claims of Christ. 
The call of the disciple is the call for whole-souled personal conversion and commitment to Christ. Now, we're living in a culture and society in which love and mercy and justice are being totally redefined to mean their opposite. The Christian faith is hated in the West as it has never been hated before. I think I can say that. And so the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, will I be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? If I were to awake one morning and find myself in a situation in which the demands that are placed upon the church and upon me personally as a Christian would either lead to persecution and pain and suffering, or I must compromise my conscience. Are we prepared as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ that we will not compromise our conscience for anything or anyone? Fear God, fear sin, and fear nothing else, said John Knox. That is discipleship. So the call is for this whole-souled conversion. Young people and children, you need to know the name of Richard Wormbrand, who was an Orthodox Lutheran minister in Romania, who was taken into prison numbers of times and tortured by the communists because of his Christian faith and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this disciple of Jesus Christ was faithful to him through it all. But just before he was taken into prison the first time, he took his Sunday school class of about 15 boys and girls. This was on Sunday morning. He took his class to the zoo. You might think, I'd like my Sunday school class to go to the zoo. But he took them in front of the lion cage. And he said to them, your forefathers in faith were thrown before such wild beasts for their faith. Know that you also will have to suffer. You will not be thrown before lions, but you will have to suffer at the hands of men who would be much worse than lions. And he called these 10 or 15 children to faithful discipleship in following Jesus Christ. Some of you may say, what a cruel thing to do to children. Oh no, he was preparing these Christian children for what they all were about to face. And just read Mark's gospel, and you'll see this world system is not our friend. That's what is meant by come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing and I'll receive you and be a father unto you. There's an antithesis between God's kingdom and this world. They are at loggerheads. I'm talking about principle to principle. So our calling definitely is not, hear me, our calling as a church, my calling as a minister, your calling as a Christian, our calling is definitely not to attempt to make the gospel palatable to slough off the rough edges. That's not our calling. We are called to speak lovingly, graciously, the truth of God's Word, and to learn more and more to live accordingly. And if now, in the small things that you face as a Christian, that can be difficult for you, but truly small in comparison with some of the things we've been mentioning, 
if now we learn how to live faithfully in the small things, then we will be prepared when the large thing comes. You know, it must have been 35 years ago that Carol Reiber told me that when her children would go out, she would say to them, remember whose you are. Now, of course, she meant, remember, you're a Reiber. She meant more than that. Remember what we've taught you. Remember the Savior in whom you have put your trust. Remember whose you are. Vicki and I said the same thing to our son. Only the Lord can save a soul. Only He can change a heart. But I say to you, the call to discipleship is every day remembering to whom you belong. Remember whose you are. I'll put it even more personally. And I've said this to a a few of you. I kind of avoid really personal things in the pulpit, but I think this will be a help. Um, It was last May after my father died that my mother declined and lived only a few days after my father's death. And in one of her last days on earth, and Vicki and I were there, my brother and his wife, but on one of her last days on earth, I think I was alone with her when this happened, she looked up at me in a moment of great clarity And she said, remember, your calling defines you. Yes, ma'am, I said. I was amazed. My mother wasn't eating, wasn't drinking. She was dying. She looked up at me and clearly said, remember, your calling defines you. I pray I will never forget that. And I know that what my mother meant was your calling as a minister of word and sacrament defines you. Walk faithfully. But may I apply this to every Christian who is here. You have been called by the effectual operations of the Spirit of God into the kingdom of God, out of the kingdom of darkness, into a loving relationship with a loving Heavenly Father, through the mediation of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, you have been called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Remember, don't forget, remember, your calling defines you. Remember to whom you belong. Remember whose you are. Amen.